So could you start just by saying your name and your current position and affiliation? Sure, I'm Jennifer Beam Dowd and I'm a professor of demography and population health in the Department of Sociology and the Lieberhume Center for Demographic Science. That's great, thank you. And without telling me your entire life history, could you just uh, go over how you first got interested in this area of research and what your main kind of staging posts have been on the way to your current position? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess prior to COVID, I was doing a lot of research on. Oh, I mean, let's go. I'm going even way back. back. I'm going way, way back. Way, way, so way back. You, okay. You, yeah. Well, I was. I yeah. I was just. I guess going to signpost the the topic. Mm. Um, a lot of work on the social determinants of health, mm. and that I guess for me started in graduate school. I was actually um, studying economics and public policy, and really interested in improving people's lives, um, you know, through the study of economics. And I kind of um, shifted a bit to health as an outcome, thinking about how inequalities in health are kind of the ultimate injustice when, when I learned that, you know, people with less education and income actually have lower life expectancy um, and worse health throughout their lives. It kind of, a light bulb went off that this, you know, this is the ultimate form of inequality. and. Um, decided I wanted to devote my research um, to that. So that was graduate school um, at, was that? at Princeton mm -hmm. University. So I studied demography and economics um, and then drifted a little bit more into to health after that. I did a postdoctoral research fellowship um, at the University of Michigan. Um, and that's where I linked up with people from a lot of different disciplines. So I worked closely with Alison Aiello, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist, and she was kind of interested in also social determinants of health, um, but trying to understand the biology underneath it. So, you know, what exactly is getting under the skin when people are getting sick um, because of their social class? And so we kind of really bonded on that. We both had that passion to understand the mechanisms. And so we actually studied um, the immune system and different infections and how they were related um, to the social environment and especially chronic stress. And so that's what got me kind of knee deep in learning a lot more biology than I had um, been trained to do as a social scientist. Um, but I really, really valued that interdisciplinary collaborations and I've tried to replicate that ever since. So I don't like kind of being pigeonholed, I guess, in one single discipline. Um, and so that was a really great um, program. It was actually called the Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholars, and it was meant um, to build these collaborations to solve, you know, big health problems across, um, you know, but bringing people in from lots of different disciplines. So um, that was a really valuable training for me. Um, and then I became an assistant professor at the City University of New York in both epidemiology and demography. They had a School of Public Health um, and Demography Center. Um, and yes, I guess toiled away on also trying to, to unpack some of these biological mechanisms responsible for health inequalities. Um, and so, yeah, that eventually, um, I guess, brought me over to England. I worked at King's College London for a while in their Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, and then came to Oxford in November of 2019 with the uh, founding of the Lieberhume Center for Demographic Science. And 
the rest is history because mm. obviously, yeah, the world changed a lot within just a few months mm. there. Mm. So demography, I mean, here it sits within the social sciences, in the way the university divides itself up, sits within the social sciences. Yeah. Uh, but it, from what you've been saying, it sounds as though it draws on data from a much wider field than, than just the social sciences. It definitely does. And I think our center centers at Oxford are typically embedded in a department, but we've been very consciously interdisciplinary um, from the beginning and have a lot of collaborators in, in genetics and the Big Data Institute. Um, and so we absolutely kind of want to blur those lines as much as possible. Um, and it really is kind of a toolbox um, that I think that you can apply to lots of different problems, demography. So um, no, it doesn't belong to sociology or, or any one discipline for sure. Perhaps we should define demography at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> that is always a very challenging question when I'm teaching demography. Ah, I was just just talking about this actually. Um, I'd say the most traditional demography is you know thinking about population dynamics and population change, and um, you know historically that very much kind of meant population size, age distribution, and so you know the three things that really affect that are you know births. So demographers love to study fertility. Um, deaths, you know, people exiting the population, so we study a lot about mortality and migration, people moving across these borders. So those are kind of the three, the three big things that demography was built on. Um, but it really became a way to think about all of these life transitions that affect those things. So obviously, um, you know, partnering and getting married are very important for understanding and predicting fertility. So there's a lot of family demography that understands family formation and change. Um, and similarly, you know, mortality trends are really about health that's happening way before people die. So, you know, it's, it's really a much larger body of research about what determines the pace of aging in humans and what can we do to change that. Um, and with migration also, you know, what motivates people to, to migrate or it's about, so it's not just about measuring the outcomes, but understanding the, the human decisions that go into um, contributing to those, those behaviors. So it really kind of has built, I think, up and up and up to a, um, a very wide umbrella as a quantitative social science where you can think about and answer a lot of questions. But I guess the key thing is it always tries to tie those individual level decisions then to how that affects patterns, you know, at the population level. So what's going on with fertility or mortality trends. Um, and, and so that's where it's a really nice um, toolkit and I think was especially helpful during the COVID pandemic with all the data coming out. Well, before we get to the COVID pandemic, what were the specific areas of health that, that you were focusing on in your research? Yeah, so as I said, I was actually very interested in how chronic stress and um, immune function might actually explain why people with lower socioeconomic status seem to have accelerated aging. So, um, you know, it depends on what populations you look at, but life expectancy can differ by about 10 years across from the top to the bottom of social groups, even in 
re relatively high-income countries like the U.S. or the U.K. and that's kind of a staggering, um, you know, gap. And taking a look at things like health behaviors, like smoking or obesity, it seems like maybe that would explain um, some of that gap. But it those things actually don't explain as much as we might expect. And so there there was a search for kind of other explanations, and there's this idea that you know just being in a lower um, social status comes with a lot of chronic wear and tear. You know, it's um, even just daily hassles of your car breaking down, but obviously there's a lot more stress um, for things, you know, wor being worried about, um, you know, losing your job and not having a, a safety net or savings. Um, you can think of all sorts of stressors that, that do just kind of accumulate over time and, and might, um, you know, literally weather people down. Um, and so we were using data that incorporates biological measures and social data to kind of track, you know, how people's immune systems were um, reacting to the social environment. So measuring things like inflammation, um, which is kind of a marker um, of aging these days that's become quite popular. And also chronic infections were something that we studied. So there's this whole class of, of herpes viruses, which you probably have heard of and but there's you know something like um cause cold sores yeah so the one yeah people i think immediately think of herpes simplex one and two which calls cause cold sores but there's actually um varicella what causes chicken pox and shingles is also in this class of viruses um the one we study a lot is called cytomegalovirus and it's not that well known because most people have it, over 90% of the population would test positive for antibodies. Um, but the, the, all of these herpes viruses, the key feature is that they kind of stay with you for life. You don't ever fully um, get rid of them. They, they establish latency in their hosts, and that's why you can get shingles and reactivation of cold sores and things. Um, so they're unusual in that way, but it means you can kind of measure antibody response to them as an indirect marker of how well your immune system is keeping everything under control. And so um, we were able to, to use that in some national surveys and show big differences by level of education and income in people's ability to control um, these infections. Um, also associated with inflammation and, um, you know, actually premature mortality. We were able to show that in some population surveys. Um, so that, that was, you know, stuff we did very, prior to the pandemic, but it became, it became kind of very important to think about um, once COVID was, was out into the world, we did start seeing very socially patterned kind of susceptibility to severe disease. And you know some of what we immediately thought of um, based on our work was that there was already a lot of underlying vulnerability um, in certain groups um, because their yeah their immunity is just has been um, worn down a bit over their their lifetimes and so I think that did contribute to the differential burden that we saw um, once once the pandemic arrived. So before we get to that, <laughs> how how do you collect data? You don't yourselves run labs, presumably? Yeah, no, demographers, um, 
I guess are are known for repurposing data collected for other sort you know other purposes and going back to kind of church records were how we measured births and deaths you know hundreds of years ago and building on from that and so there's a lot of administrative data that we use just simply the vital um, records that are now collected um, but also a lot of pop what we call population surveys that might be run um, by different governments or just um, a lot of research centers have um, ongoing studies. The, the British cohort studies are a great example. Um, they're currently run out of UCL and, and funded by, by the government, but, um, or the funding agencies of the government, but they've been following people. Um, the first one was the 1946 birth cohort and it was maybe everyone born in one week and you know, England in 1946. And, those have continued um, 1958 and 1970, and, and they continue to add them. Um, so that sort of data um, is what we typically um, analyze. And so some demographers are involved in those studies and collecting them and adding new questions and new you know, health. Um, there's a lot of health data in a lot of these surveys, including biological measures where we collect blood um, or do MRI, you know, brain scans to see what's going on uh, with dementia um, and cognitive decline. So there's a lot of rich data that's already out there, I guess. So it's, it's more unusual for an individual investigator to kind of go collect their own instead of just collaborating with some of these big existing surveys that are already happening. Do you happening. use UK Biobank just out of interest? I don't. Other members yeah. of um, the center here do do yeah. work with that because they they've you know do a combination of um, social science and genetics and yeah it's an amazing resource for that. But no, it's not that. It's not part of my work. So I think we finally arrived at the pandemic. <laughs> so do you remember just from a personal point of view? where you were or when you first heard that there was something going on in, in China that looked as if it might be serious? That's a good question. I assume I was following the news by early January of 2020. Um, you know, but I think I'm a very optimistic person. So, you know, you often saw some of that news pop up and, and things would kind of fizzle out. So, I, you know, I think the very first time maybe you saw a new virus is being reported, you're like, okay, we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Kind of like the monkey pox right now. Like, yes. oh, that's a bit alarming, but uh, <laughs> let's, we won't get overexcited yet. So, you know, I think um, I didn't immediately have all those alarm bells going off, um, but pretty quickly um, throughout, yeah, probably by the end of January, we kind of looked around and thought we should figure out a way to, to get some of this data. And we did have some graduate students from, from China who were saying, you know, we should, this is where they're posting some of the daily numbers and we should try to, so we set something up to kind of scrape the data off the websites. Just that we just had a sense this would be important and valuable and we should capture the data while we can. And of course other people, you know, created these dashboards later on and ended up doing that. But that's the first thing I remember doing, doing as an organized mm. group here. Um, and by February, you know, with, with things um, taking off in Italy, I guess that was more towards the end of February, but we had several postdocs um, from Italy, some of whom had kind of gone back, I think, when they 
I don't know why. I can't remember why they decided going back if, um, would be a good idea. But they, um, and one of whom was actually in the Lombardy region where it was, it was quite serious. So, so we started getting um, kind of reports back and um, decided as a group that we had to mobilize um, and try to understand what was going on with the that, mortality that, data. Did you all just get together in a room and say, yeah, right, no, we we're <laughs> going to do this? Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we planned a meeting. And at that point, the center had just launched in November 2019. So we were a pretty small group um, of faculty and a few postdocs. And so we just said, yeah, we, so we organized a meeting in our small conference room and said anyone who's just kind of interested in brainstorming, um, come and it was yeah it was in, indeed a really for us a historic meeting because we we were looking at the death data from Italy and we noticed a very strong I mean it's it's so I guess obvious now with COVID but at the time all of this was new raw data coming out so um, it was very strongly associated with age so like all of the deaths were most of the deaths were happening above age 65 in Italy at that time, if you looked at, at the data coming out. And demographers, you know, like I said, love to study population composition. And one of the huge um, issues of the past, you know, few decades in, in rich countries has been population aging and the fact that a higher and higher percentage of the population is above a certain age, like 65. Um, and this has been kind of a population transformation for the last, like I said, several decades. And as a function of people living longer is, is one thing, but also with huge drops in fertility um, compared to what we, you know, people used to have lots of kids. Um, you know, rich countries are having many fewer children. So that just means there's much larger cohorts that are aging and, and not as large of, of young cohorts underneath to kind of support them. So yeah, which has economic consequences. Yeah, it has yeah. important economic consequences. Um, but it also, you know, just kind of rang a bell for us that, um, you know, Italy is actually one of the oldest populations in the world. It was second only to um, Japan in the proportion of the population above age 65, which was, um, I think it was about 23% when we were looking in 2020 um, and so yeah we wrote a you know what felt like a pretty simple paper um, just outlining how important the age composition of populations might be for the ultimate burden of COVID mortality um, just based on that simple very steep association between um, age and COVID deaths um, and we did some different scenarios then because this was you know, the very beginning that hadn't, you know, Italy was the first place really outside of, of Wuhan that was seeing a lot of deaths. So it was kind of all speculation of what would happen if this spread around the world. Um, and so we did simulations of countries with, you know, different age structures um, and how that would translate into the total mortality burden, you know, making some estimates of what percentage of the population might get infected um, and so it was a very kind of, um, you know, simple scenario based exercise, but it really dramatically kind of showed how even with the same infection rate, countries that are older are going to just see a lot, a lot more mortality. Um, and so that I, I also remember that because we finished that up literally on March 13th, we were all still in the office <laughs> and we're like, OK, we've got the draft done and we made some nice data visualizations 
Um, and I was in charge of kind of finishing that up over the weekend. We got it in the form of a real draft. And I think we submitted it to the journal then too, but we're like, okay, we should tweak this. You know, we should put it out, out into the world. And some of us were on Twitter, but we weren't like real, real Twitter professionals or aficionados at that point. So I went on Twitter Sunday morning, March 15th, and um, did a thread of our paper just kind of describing um, describing the results. And we also actually had some data in there from our colleague in Italy showing um, the difference in the, the um, outbreak curves for um, Lombardy versus Bergamo, I think it was. So one region had sh- actually locked down several days earlier. And um, we kind of created this figure that looked like the flatten the curve, the famous flatten the curve thing from the 1918 pandemic. And it was just really striking because it, it really looked like if you cut it off early, um, it did succeed in flattening that curve. So that was part of this paper and went out on Twitter. And I just I, I think I might have done it on my phone. I don't remember. I just remember sitting in a, in a, in a recliner on a Sunday morning, drinking coffee, trying to get this out into the world. And um, we sent it off. And then the rest of the day, I went on a walk or whatever, you know, um, and my phone was blowing up with notifications. And, you know, for whatever reason, that especially the flatten the curve um, data was really compelling to people. And it, it kind of went viral on Twitter and got, I guess, over a million views, not, not retweets, but if you look at the reach, it went pretty far that day. Um, and all of a sudden, yeah, the media started calling um, and we kind of realized- so that's the government calling that that's the, the, the <laughs> um, Yeah, and I'll just say, and of course, everyone kind of remembers that weekend because that was, I mean, that's when we, we left the office and never came back. And I don't know um, if we realized that was gonna happen at the time. I think, I think the UK lockdown actually happened. 23rd. Yeah, a little bit later than, than some other people, mm. but. Um, you know, it's such a, a whirlwind. We, I'm trying to remember, we very quickly did also do a follow-up analysis of how, of how it would affect the UK mm-hmm. domestically based on, because, you know, there's actually big differences in age um, composition even within countries. And, you know, urban areas like London are actually quite young compared to some areas. So we did a, a paper mapping hospital capacity, because also at the time, you probably remember, it was all about how many beds and ventilators are there. So we found some measures of that and combined it with um, the age structure of different local areas to say, here's areas that look prone to having more strain just based on the demographics. Um, and yes, we did get a lot of inquiries from local area governments trying to help them kind of anticipate and understand their risks. So um, we were doing a lot of consultation there. Um, and internationally, we were, yeah, just doing a lot of um, not only media, but the World Bank and other um, organizations were in touch because at that time it was kind of trying to anticipate where things would be particularly bad. And I guess I should have said the other element we focused on in that first paper was that Italy had a high level of intergenerational co-residence, that it wasn't, you know, just the old age structure that they had a lot of old people, it was that those old people were in daily contact with a lot of younger people. 
And anecdotally, our colleagues were saying, you know, it probably came into Milan as an international hub, which I think, I think we do know that's kind of how uh, the virus first got there. And a lot of young professionals in Milan still commute home to the villages and have all these meals and, and live with their older family members. So we, we just talked about that in that paper as a potential, um, you know, something that can accelerate transmission to the vulnerable elderly groups. And um, I think that also struck a chord, especially for countries where that, you know, living situation is quite common. And it did make a lot of Italian news. There was one headline that said, you know, you know why, are, why are deaths so bad in Italy? Blame the family, says Oxford University. <laughs> I know, I was like, and it was in Italian, and I saw, I was like, does that say blame the family, says Oxford University? Yeah, and that wasn't really our message. We were just trying to highlight, um, yeah, highlight things that, that we should, everyone should be looking out for to try to, um, anticipate vulnerabilities and I think um, I think that did play out a bit also when um, you know it wasn't too long before the outbreak kind of hit the US and New York City was hit extremely hard in that first wave and it was a lot of immigrant um, populations that also you know where the the young people were in the service sector or something having a lot of contact and then um, households where lots of generations lived together were particularly vulnerable. So I think that that was another important demographic factor that did indeed um, end up being important. And um, obviously we all had to figure out ways to adjust our lives to kind of protect those most vulnerable groups. But that was you know something that we tried to raise the alarm about early on. And was that data feeding into government policy in the UK at that stage? At, at the local level, it definitely was. Mm. Um, I mean, our, our whole center had a lot of different people who got pulled into things. So the director, Melinda Mills, um, ended up being pulled on to SAGE committees and, and doing a lot of um, reports. Um, and, and so I guess the, the one that I do know kind of contributed to some policy um, in April or May, we, we also then, I, th I think quickly after this paper got a, a lot of attention and seemed, and there was also just so much raw data coming out and people trying to make sense of it. And that's actually, I think demographers are kind of good at that and making connections between um, the individual level data and, and what's going on at the population level. So we continued to think about ways in which we could contribute and of course, we all thought that lockdown would be a very time limited thing, which I, I mean, I guess it was the first one, but you know, we didn't know another one was in the works um, later. But we, so we were like, what can we do to minimize spread, you know, once lockdown restrictions are eased? You know, what would be strategic ways to um, continue to protect people? So, so the second group paper that we worked on that ended up being quite important was. Um, a paper on, we call it the bubble paper or the pod paper, but it did kind of the science and the um, social network simulation of why, you know, strategies like having a pod where you limit your social contacts to a few key people um, kind of limits the spread. And it's, it's more complicated than that, but um, the paper is really nice with some data visualizations. Um, 
but the core idea is kind of when you limit those those bridges you know that um if i you know if i have a lot of social contact with one group but then i'm also going to an entirely new group you know once a week to hang out with them then you have this possibility for for bringing the virus between two groups um whereas if you can really kind of keep those bubbles or pods more isolated it can have a really big effect on limiting the spread so do you think you coined the term bubble for that like because <laughs> that did become a term. Yeah, it did become. Yeah, it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can completely and, and claim. I think I don't <laughs> think we completely um, invented the idea of that. I think, I think the word had existed, but but we like kind of laid out the science of it, and 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 it was still quite early. This was like April, so it did suddenly. That also got taken up very quickly and it was you know quoted in or it was in the parliamentary evidence um right before the support bubble i guess policy got got um released so that was so we did feel like that was having an immediate impact and then we got lots of contacts later on because this was also you know then we had the summer which was a bit of a lull but then schools were reopening um, in the autumn, and there were just a lot of people reaching out um, about the best way to manage that. So the idea of kind of cohorting, cohorting and keeping kids in their bubbles, um, we definitely, you know, we're helping to consult with that. Different universities in the U.S. were also contacting me about that. So, um, yeah, we can't take credit for the entire idea, but kind of outlining mm. um, the science behind it and some of the optimal strategies, I think, in that paper um, did have a big impact. Um, and again, it just it felt like we really urgently wanted to figure out things that people needed to know. Um, it just felt very different from normal research because it was a lot of our research doesn't have immediate applications. Mm. Um, mm. And so this the urgency of this was was quite new. I mean, I know that that happened to people in a lot of different fields. Um, but you were, I don't know who was, Melinda was leading on this, but you did some work on, on masks as well. Were you on face masks that? of that. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't directly involved in that, but that I think that was part of her um, contributions to SAGE and um, other, I, I think she was doing some things for the British Academy as well. And the Royal Society. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. okay, yes, it was the Royal Society, that's right. <laughs> Um, and right, that was just another really hot button issue that summer of 2020 was, um, thinking about face masks and, and that, um, so yeah, I've, I was doing other science communication work, which we can maybe talk about. Mm, we definitely need to talk about that. We should talk about that. But, um, no, I think that, that review that you know, she kind of did a big, um, meta-analysis or review on the evidence for, for face masks and it. You know, it really was timed when that came out. It, it was not long before the government did finally come out and recommend them in public spaces. So, um, yeah, it was just a very, it's very strange for social scientists to see their work just have, seemingly have that impact within a matter of days. But um, it was a very strange time, mm. for sure. Mm. No, you said that it was very different from research you've done before on, on those grounds. Um, something else I'm interested in is... Um, the notion of working as a team, which, I mean, clearly you are a centre, you, you have a collaborative ethos, um, but did you find that working on these COVID projects was an even more extreme example of that? 
Absolutely. No, it was, I mean, in retrospect, that part was almost magical because we were a new, a new group that had recently come together, but that, um, you know, starting with that first paper in collaboration and then being thrown into just the urgency of contributing somehow. I just think everyone really wanted, you know, to, it was, yeah, kind of like a war effort. I think people everywhere wanted to figure out how they could contribute and suddenly the nerds could contribute <laughs> by, you know, understanding um, just the, the absolute flood of, infer of data that was coming out. So we were then in constant contact, even though we, we all left the office on March 13th and never came back. Um, we set up the Slack channel right away. We're having Zooms just all the time. Um, it, I, I mean, yes, I felt, I felt like the team came together and it, it felt like we've been working together forever and incredibly bonded in a, a short amount of time to try to, you know, yeah, to try to answer these really important questions. And, and everyone just kind of pitched in at that point. It was, I think it was a great outlet for people too. I mean, it's hard to remember now, but everyone was really disconcerted about what's happening in the world. And it was, you know, quite stressful to have your, you know, kids home, homeschooling. There were so many stressors in people's lives, but just really worried about um, people's health. And, and so, yeah, having a productive outlet where you, you felt like um, you could contribute, I think was, was really important to all of us. And we absolutely couldn't have pulled it off without the team because in, individually it just, it would have taken, um, you know, one of us a long time to, to collect the right data, figure out the best way to, to pull it all together. And we could just do it in such a short amount of time um, working together. And it was, that part just seemed effortless. It was just like everyone coalesced around this common common need and, and made stuff happen. So. And did that extend beyond these walls into the rest of Oxford, the rest of the UK and even the rest the of the world? UK. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of work together. I, I, you know, I think a lot of our research was just um, with this group. Um, I'm trying to think, yeah, most of it came out of the center, you know, which then continued to grow. Mm -hmm. So we mm -hmm. Um, I guess, you know, some, some things kept happening during the pandemic as far as hiring. And within a few months, we also had some new people and wrote some important papers on the impact of COVID on life expectancy in the UK and measuring excess mortality and things. And those papers also ended up being, um, I mean, not as immediately policy relevant because they're, they're more, you know, taking stock of what has been the toll, um, so far of the pandemic. But and, they, and what were the main messages of those papers? The main messages. Um, the, let's see, I'm trying to think. The first one was looking at excess mortality in, um, in the UK. And first of all, I think that concept was, I, I find it an interesting, it's, it's a very demographic concept, excess mortality, that suddenly became like, just a really useful tool, I think, during the pandemic for explaining to people what was going on. So, um, you know, probably, I don't know if this was as much of an issue here in the UK, but um, I also followed a lot of the US media and social media, and there was a concern that we were overcounting COVID deaths. Um, 
You know, a lot of people were convinced about this. Like, they would have died anyway. Yeah, they would have died anyway. They were dying with COVID, not of COVID. And then even in the U.S., there was kind of more cynical interpretations of, oh, they want, you know, to count these deaths. So even if you come in with um, a motorcycle accident, but you test positive, they're, they're counting you as COVID deaths. And, and this was like a pervasive myth. You know, I, I think it still is a somewhat per- pervasive piece of misinformation. Um, and, you know, that it's a hard to, you know, hard to completely counter that. Like doctors were coming out saying, you know, it would be highly um, unethical of us to, um, you know, mess with death certificates or, you know, so that like that's not happening. Because there was also in the U.S., of course, this idea that there were financial incentives for doctors to put this down. So there were, you know, lots of conspiracy theories about that. Um, but excess mortality, which um, demographers often use in natural disasters or, or things to try to, um, where we're not counting, um, you know, we don't know if people died, you know, specifically in an earthquake or some, um, you know, major, or if there's a heat wave, there are often things that happen where we see um, elevated deaths and... Or wars. Or wars, yeah, exactly. Um, but the benefit is you're, you're comparing the deaths to some kind of baseline of how many deaths would have been expected. So it's often, you know, the last five, the average of the last five years, say, is the most kind of basic example of what the counterfactual would be. And so it really is asking that counterfactual question. If COVID hadn't happened, you know, how many deaths would have been expected? And we'll look at how many deaths... But the, I guess the key feature is it's deaths from any cause. So we're not just counting COVID deaths. We're saying we actually do a pretty good job of, of measuring all deaths because in developed countries, you need a death certificate for you know all sorts of um, administrative reasons. So we can get a really good count of um, total deaths. Um, and then that tells us how many more deaths have happened above and beyond what we would have expected. And so... That was, I guess that was our first paper, but it was also something that I used to communicate a lot to general audiences about why, you know, COVID actually was um, causing a serious, a serious burden of mortality. And we were actually undercounting COVID deaths for the most part, especially in the beginning when testing was not as widely available. So, um, so we showed we, we showed that the high levels of excess mortality um, in the first half of 2020, um, we kind of looked at what ages were most hit. And, you know, not surprisingly, it was older ages. Um, but on a relative basis, you know, compared to their normal mortality, the percentage increases in death were actually kind of high for even, you know, sort of 40-year-olds. Um, so it wasn't leaving people, you know, completely unscathed. And you could also see a, a much higher burden for, for men compared to women, and that is something that, that has remained consistent as well. Um, and then, you know, after 2020, um, you know, passed, we kind of took stock of the entire year for life expectancy and also looked across 29 um, other high-income countries, mostly because they had the complete data that is, you know, by age and sex in a very um, fine, fine-grained way that's necessary to, to calculate life expectancy. And there were just really dramatic losses. I think in, in the UK, it was about one year uh, loss in life expectancy. The US was a real outlier with about a two-year um, loss in life expectancy. 
and we were That's able average across the whole population across the whole population mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so you know life expectancy we don't have to dig into but it really is you know people think they know what it means but it's really a snapshot of current mortality it's um, it's not a prediction of an individual's lifespan so it's kind of a tricky concept to communicate to the public but um, we did try to put the context like a shock of that nature had not been seen since World War II basically to mortality so um, you know this this was a really sizable um, hit to, to mortality and we've since updated that for 2021 and um, a lot of countries have bounced back, you know, 2021 was a bit um, of a mixed bag because we had the vaccine rollout, but, you know, January before that really happened was still quite, quite deadly of 2021, but we've had new variants that brought a lot more transmission. And so um, we saw a much um, kind of wider variety of experiences across the high income countries in 21 with some getting even worse. Um, Eastern Europe was hit much harder in, in 2021. The U.S. did just as bad badly in 2021. Um, and you could really see kind of the divergence um, in countries that probably had better vaccine uptake and more efficient rollouts um, and compared to those that didn't. So, um, yeah, I'd say the the experiences globally are starting to diverge, which I think makes sense with a lot of differences in the um, responses and vaccine uptake has been kind of fascinating also from my point of view from thinking about the decisions made around vaccine policy. So going back to your original interest in socioeconomic determinants of health and mortality, yeah. how fine-grained were you able to be in looking at who, who was dying? Who was dying? Yeah, you know, that I think a lot of that work remains to be done because partly because of the way the UK collects their data. Um, in the US, level of education and race ethnicity are actually on death certificates. So kind of very quickly that sort of those estimates could be, um, you know, churned out. Whereas in the UK, it's that's not the case. Um, there is a, a spot for occupation on death certificates, but it's missing on a, on a large percentage of them, so it's a little less useful. So it, you were kind of relying on um, data from, from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, to link to previous census data or do some other type of data linkages. So, so they started putting out um, reports that, that looked at some of this. and. Not surprisingly, there were really big race ethnic differences in the UK. And some of that, of course, was, you know, London getting hit so hard in the first wave and that being, um, you know, where a lot of um, ethnic minorities are living. So part of that is just kind of um, the different pattern of the pandemic itself, that it started in those big internationally connected cities and then it took longer to get to the more rural areas. Um, but occupation seemed to be quite important, and you know, not surprisingly at all. But um, your ability to socially distance and work from home, you know, is tremendously different depending on your socioeconomic status. Um, and so that, yes, that came out very clearly in the data that certain occupations um, were much more, you know, dangerous than others, especially in those early waves when. And it's. Presumably, mostly public-facing roles. And mostly public-facing roles. Yeah. yeah, there was a long list, but even you know things like bus drivers, um, mm -hmm. but food service, meat, 
processors. Yes, meat processors, because that environment also apparently was very conducive, very humid, was like, um, and close contact was very conducive to transmission. Um, so I think that's been interesting that um, in, in real time, you could kind of see the social determinants of health. It was like a new health threat, and you know, there's all these different mechanisms that might contribute to that ultimate inequality. Um, you know, so with the race ethnicity, even in, you know, that was also um, a function of living arrangements as well. So there, there were a lot of um, intergenerational households um, and, and probably just more crowded in urban areas um, households. So all of those things seem to, to feed in, especially in those first couple waves. It's, it's interesting that the different waves have had somewhat different patterning, I think, depending on, um, yeah, geographically where they, what was going on or, you know, what the initial, you know, sometimes it was kids going back to school that seemed to, to start these surges. And, um, so, so there's some interesting patterns over time as well, but yes, the bottom line, I think, and certainly in the UK and the U S was, um, a really strong social patterning ultimately of, of the severe disease and mortality. Um, and so a lot of that was occupational exposure, but probably a lot of it was also, you know, kind of more serious underlying conditions. So um, that's something we'll continue to explore to try to understand the differences. Um, in the U.S., there's a lot more obesity and diabetes um, than other countries. Um, and especially even in those younger middle ages, um, you know, like 50 to 64, there were actually a lot more deaths in the U.S. in that age group than there have been in the rest of Europe and, and the U.K. So trying to understand those cross-country differences is also something we're very interested in. There's going to be a lot of research on more, a lot of mortality research um, around COVID for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yes. And do you, I mean, how optimistic are you? Are you optimistic at all <laughs> that that understanding, which in some ways is not new, is it? Yeah. We had the Black Report in 1982. We've had Michael Marmot studies. Oh, exactly. We know yeah. that economic differences make a difference to health outcomes. Um, are we any closer, do you think, to getting policy changes that will address that? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great point, because um, England has been at the forefront of highlighting these, these social determinants of health. Um, you know, I, I work kind of knee-deep in, in this, and so I've been thinking about it a lot, and I guess I, I remain pessimistic in the sense that it's very hard to break all of these mechanisms that tie your social class to health. It's, yeah, there's a famous paper by Bruce Link and um, Joe Phelan called the you know social factors as the fundamental cause of disease. That you know the situation can change, um, the mechanisms can change, but there's always you know because people with more resources can or just social capital, education, you know when a new risk emerges like COVID, they're able to protect themselves better through a variety of ways. So. So I agree, it's, it's not surprising that we saw that. Um, and so I guess I'm pessimistic that we can ever eliminate these relative inequalities, but I always remain hopeful that we can still improve everyone's outcomes and health by um, you know, still giving them better resources to, to protect themselves. Um, and certainly we've seen improvements in educational attainment that do 
um, you typically lead to, to better health over, over a lifetime. Um, but I do think, you know, social safety nets and basic kind of income supports have also been shown to make a big difference, um, especially in kids' lives and ultimately um, their, their health in later life. So, yeah, I'm, op I'm optimistic, I guess, um, about helping people in absolute terms. I guess eliminating inequalities is is a nice um, a nice goal for us to always keep in mind. But that's probably yeah. There's inequalities even in you know one of the things we study are these primate um, you know primate groups that still have a social rank within themselves. Oh, and monkeys. Monkeys. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry. There's yeah. There's studies of baboons and rhesus monkeys that show very similar social gradients in health. You know within these groups that don't have, you know, diplomas or degrees or money, you know, so, you know, inequality is, is very hard to completely eliminate. But at the same time, we've greatly improved people's health status overall, um, you know, across this century. And I, I think about those successes, you know, it's not just vaccines, it's been sanitation and huge public health investments like that, um, nutrition, and then, you know, more recently, we've made just huge improvements in cardiovascular disease and less smoking and statins. And, you know, so these are things that have really moved the needle on health for everyone. And then, but I do think we need to always look at the ways in which that, that can sometimes exacerbate inequalities and what we can do to minimize those the best we can. So you talked about helping people to protect their, their own health, and presumably the communication work you talked about doing was yeah. is, is part of that. So, so d tell me a little bit about what you've been able to do um, through yeah. uh, communicating with the, with the general public. Okay, yeah, I would love to talk about that. And that was, you know, honestly completely parallel to the, the research we were doing at the center, but basically the same, I think it was the same day, March 15th, um, uh, some colleagues in the U.S. who I'd, I'd worked, academic colleagues who I'd worked with actually in this Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholars Program. So they were also interdisciplinary population health scientists, um, reached out, I guess, via email or social media and said, we're starting this web page to answer questions about COVID. And they had seen, you know, me tweeting and, and doing stuff about it. So they're like, can you, can you help out? Maybe just for a couple of weeks, just like answering a couple of questions and, you know, over, I was like, sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all in. It was that really sense of all hands on deck and urgency. Um, and so first created a Facebook and Instagram page called Dear Pandemic. And that was, I, I didn't come up with the name, but my colleague did. And that was, it was kind of a riff off the Dear Abby advice columns in the past. So it was, and the real impetus was that a lot of us were getting questions from our family and friends about what the heck should I be doing as, I mean, we all remember just that sudden crescendo of like, this is real and what is, you know, what is going on? Should I cancel my travel? Um, am I going to catch this from, you know, my groceries? Do I need to wipe them down with alcohol? Like people were really, you know, very basic questions. And so um, we realized putting that out onto social media would be much more efficient than us all responding to emails from our family and friends. Um, but that was really our audience then, you know, in our mind was people um, that we loved and, and needing answers to very basic questions. But yes, in a very practical way, like 
it's, you know, they might have been interested in the epidemiology of COVID and how is it moving around the world, but they really wanted to know what actions do I need to take in my life. And so we saw a real gap in translating just, I mean, all of the flood of information that was coming out and people, you know, trying to, you know, read the internet and figure out what that meant for their daily lives. So, and daily press conferences. The daily press conferences, yeah. Um, and we, we decided we were well-placed to fill that gap because we were really good at reading across tons of disciplines and kind of summarizing and synthesizing that information. And so that's how it kicked off. It quickly, quickly kind of grew as a social media presence, um, just way faster than we expected. Um, and again, like a lot of media then, because we suddenly then were deemed to be you know, experts in all of this. And there was just such a hunger for information and people who could talk about this stuff. And you gave yourselves quite a provocative name. We so. did, yeah. Well, we, a follower, an early, very early follower, um, made a comment. Again, it was, you know, some kind of advice we were giving early on. And he wrote, I, I trust anything those nerdy girls have to say. And somehow, yes, we thought that's, that's perfect. Um, yeah, and there's been like debate about why are we calling ourselves girls? We're you know we're women and scientists, but we actually like um, the tone of being approachable, and you know we didn't want this to be feel like we were um, public health you know scolds or academics trying to give people advice. We actually liked the idea that no, we're actually your nerdy mom next door that you you trust to go ask these questions and not to judge you so much, but to really give you the bottom line, like what's the, what's the real deal here? And so that was our tone from very early on. We kind of wanted to be approachable, communicate very plainly, you know, what's, what's the bottom line of this research? Um, you know, should, uh, yeah, there was so much about whether people should wear masks, but, you know, transmission, I mean, we have a question box. That was another thing that came up really early is we wanted it to be a bi-directional communication with our community. So, so we weren't making up the questions. Yeah, I mean, you know, we often were if there was breaking news or something, but we had this question box that mostly kind of structured what we, what we wrote about and also responding to comments. Um, you know, we really tried to pour ourselves into it to alleviate, you know, people's um, concerns. And, and we also noticed quite quickly that you know, there was, it was filling this specific niche because a lot of science news, you know, was meant to kind of, you know, you know, to get media clicks, you kind of have to make it sound scary, like, oh, the new, you know, the new variant or, you know, the monkeypox, the way it's happening now, like it, it kind of raises the emotional valence is, is kind of what the media wants to do. So we kind of noticed over time that, that a lot of our posts were kind of like, yeah, you know, we're keeping an eye on this, but no, this isn't something you need to really, you know, viruses do evolve all the time. So just the fact that there's this change does not mean that it's suddenly, um, you know, going to be a very different ball game. And so a lot of, a lot of what we do is kind of manage anxiety too. People were really fearful. Um, and so we saw our role as kind of, you know, being that empathetic again, but knowledgeable, <laughs> you know, friend that could explain stuff and um yeah it's so it, it really grew and we 
you know, wrote a couple, couple posts a day. We're still going after two years. Let's say oh, two weeks. Yeah, two, two weeks, weeks has become two years. It, it just really grew um, as a social media presence. Um, all sorts of things have happened. The, the WHO just, um, it just came out today, um, chose us as a case study for um, kind of crisis pandemic science communication. And we're going to be making a handbook for them about how to replicate this effort. But you know, I think we also saw then as the pandemic wore on that there were a lot of challenges in science communication and that um, I think the UK did actually a very good job. Every time I watched all the press conferences and, and Chris Whitty and Patrick Valens were excellent communicators. I thought um, the US had some challenges. Obviously, the first part of the pandemic was during the Trump administration and the CDC had very little ability, I think, to directly communicate with the public. Um, uh, so there were there were a lot of, of missteps around the world and then a complete kind of, I think, loss of trust in, in some public facing science communication. So we decided that was a really important part of our, what we were trying to accomplish too, was to develop this trusted relationship with our followers and then so your followers are mostly in the u.s would you say i, I just mostly, had a look and it seemed yeah it, it felt to me as if you were reaching out to reaching the US out audience. to yeah so yeah and I'll, i guess i should back up and say so our, our little band of nerdy girls grew to probably about a core group of 10 at first um and yes we were all kind of connected in the u.s so that was the original social network and um, so that was, I, I think, a lot of the Facebook audience initially snowballed from our own um, contacts and things. So yeah, it has it has grown internationally, but definitely percentage-wise, the U.S. Um, is the bulk of our followers. And we also, a, a few months later, started a, a mirror um, Spanish language site called Querida Pandemia, which is actually has tons of followers all through Latin America. We kind of intended it for migrant communities in the U.S., but it somehow took off in, in Latin America where there's a lot of misinformation about COVID. Um, so where was I going? So that was the the original group. Um, yeah, most so mostly in the U.S., um, but I think there was a lot of interest. I kind of did a little series of postcards from England because there was, there was a time, at least for a time, there were things happening here maybe two or three weeks before they would happen in the U.S. So I felt like I was always giving little warning shots um, for what was about to happen. Um, and, but I think it's a good point. I think we also, our followers, if we, you can't see so much on Facebook demographics, but I think not surprisingly, it's a lot of women um, in our rough age group. You know, there is a span, but kind of the bulk is in that. And so we realized it was a lot of women like taking care of their families during the pandemic too. Like women are often the information seekers um, and feel responsible for keeping their families safe. So, you know, it's not that we would love to reach everyone in a, I guess a more diverse demographic. And we do have plenty of men who follow us, but um, I think there's something that makes sense about getting that practical information you know, to to the women kind of helping disseminate that, not only in their families, but in their communities. You know, we got so much feedback, people bringing this, you know, to help their schools reopen or, um, you know, all sorts of decisions that were being made in communities. And so that's where we felt like our reach was really amplified that, you know, there was a bit of, we started on social media to uh, and Facebook to get, 
you know, a direct link to family and friends, but, you know, Facebook came under fire a bit during the pandemic for circulating misinformation. And so we're, you know, we had some, some moments where we're like, are we, you know, you know, why are we using Facebook as our main platform? Is this, you know, is this something we shouldn't be doing? But we really felt it was important to kind of combat the misinformation on its home turf and people, a lot of people just get their news and information from social media. So we felt like you really have to meet people where they are. And then the power of that social media is people share it with their family and friends. So like shares are the thing that we kind of use as our, our metric because you know, if someone trusts your posts you know, enough to share it with family and friends, that's a strong signal. And we know that like in kind of health behavior research that people really trust, they trust information from their, their own network and their, their friends. So, um, so we want to be that trusted messenger and then from which th that information kind of emanates out into other social networks and communities. And um, that's been kind of our, our real goal. Um, and also just giving people tools to combat the, these conspiracy theories and misinformation like often you might have someone you know come and say oh yeah we're overcounting those covid deaths but you wouldn't necessarily know how to you know counter that kind of argument and and so you know we made we had ready-made posts that explain this and people were so grateful they're like oh thank goodness i've been hearing this and now i have something to share with people so um, yeah, we do think it had kind of this multiplicative impact by just being shared. And that's, that's what we hope we can continue to do mm, mm. is kind of, yeah, become, help people be nodes of trust in their own social networks is kind of the model that we're trying to create. Mm. And you could see how, well, obviously WHO has seen that <laughs> yeah. it could, you could use that model to address obesity or heart health or a number yeah. of other conditions no exactly we kind of you know as it went on we never thought it would be going on this long but unfortunately yeah covid um kept going but we're we're more and more trying to transition to to non-covid topics just because we do feel like there's a real lack of access to accessible information there's you know if you go even you know to the who or a government website to look up um, you know some some guidance on a public health thing it's it's really dense and difficult to read so there's really a need I think to empower people with information that they can actually consume and and use in their daily lives and so we do want to continue to provide that for a variety of other health and medical topics and also because we've established trust we think with um, our current follower base. We noticed this when the vaccines, you know, came out. We'd already been publishing and writing for for months by then when the the vaccines, um, the trials, you know, came out in November. And then we're like, okay, you know, our major task is going to be to educate people now on the vaccines and um, you know alleviate people's concerns. So we did a lot of writing on the vaccines, and some people. I just remember with this one comment that was like, oh, you know, we try to make things as non-technical as possible. Sometimes it's hard. And so there was one comment uh, from someone, you know, oh, you know, thanks so much for this. I can't, you know, I can't always follow all of the um, technical details, but, um, 
you know, but you've built, you know, I've been following you for months and you've built that trust with me. So I know, I know that I can trust that these vaccines are safe because you're telling me that's, that's the bottom line is that they're safe. And that just really hit us, you know, that, you know, people have actually now put their trust in us and it gives us an ability then to hopefully be there for the next crisis, which I, I hope is not anytime too soon, but you kind of need to foster those relationships, I think, during normal times so that you can be there and ramp that up um, during a crisis. So so we're kind of fine. If, if things lay low for a while and people don't need us, I think we'd be very happy, but we want, we want to continue to be there um, in the event that, that we need to get important information out. And there are plenty of kind of more everyday, you're right, science and health topics that, that need covering. Um, so, so that's definitely part of the ongoing plan. We want to democratize information a bit more. It's not, it shouldn't be only academics who have a good sense of what's going on with stuff. It's, it's actually really hard to evaluate evidence um, on your own. And we know that Dr. Google is not, <laughs> not that reliable. So we want to be everyone's Dr. Google who can actually, you know, put together the pieces for people. And people did. I mean, to a much greater extent than before, try to get across all this information, didn't they? The yeah. Terms like our number and. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, there was so much. Yeah, no, the public has gotten quite, quite an education. And I should say that was another piece. Like a lot of it was very specific topics, um, you know, explaining, you know, airborne transmission or something, or, you know, if you're in a car, which windows should you roll down for the airflow to be <laughs> the best there were you know there were just tons of things that we covered but we also wanted to educate people on how to read science news themselves so we have kind of um, some different series on you know just fallacies to look out for um, or you know how to better interpret scientific research design and results mm. and that's something we also think is really important so, going forward. It's, a, it's an education in science literacy. Yes, yes. we want to, yeah. we want to, that's one of our kind of two aims is to kind of curate this information for people, but also empower them to be able to do it a bit better themselves. Mm. Mm. That's terrific. Um, right. But I will, yeah, I'll just say that was one of the, the best experiences because this group of women just came together and supported each other also personally because, I mean, Were you good friends before? Everyone, or did, have you only, we all had kind of some random connections mm. to each other. So there were some maybe pairs of people who had good friendships. But no, we mostly, you know, all bonded over that experience. And it is another thing that, I mean, we'll just be bonded for life because <laughs> it was so intense and just so many hours and this was all volunteer as well I mean everyone just did it outside of their normal job and again that didn't feel unusual at the time because it was the pandemic and an emergency and everyone wanted to do everything that they could um, but I think thinking about the sustainability of of that it's not something that's typically rewarded in the you know traditional academic structures kind of doing that kind of outreach and and so that's been just one of the challenges um, as it's gone on longer and longer to figure out how to do that but I think with the pandemic you know universities were very supportive in general of of all of those efforts but I think we need to find a way to build that in more permanently as um, you know to have some some way to reward that type of work in academia. 
I really second that. <laughs> it's something I've seen a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm just I'm moving into the, the, the sort of final stages, which are more about how the whole experience impacted on you personally. Um, so first of all, how did having to be away from the office impact on what you personally were able to do? You know, I was shocked at how well we worked together in those first few months because of the technology, um, you know, that we all have learned. So Zoom and Slack were our go-tos, but we were really in constant communication um, for, for those first few months, our research group. Um, so I didn't, I think I didn't really feel it until, you know, more like a year in and I think then you really, I, I felt us kind of going, not going our separate ways, but the, the way we had just coalesced as a team, people started pursuing more of their own um, kind of, not side projects, people were all working on important stuff, but kind of that feeling of unity dissipated a little bit, I think be, for not seeing each other in person, because mm. it really, it truly is all of these conversations that you have in the hallway and coffee and lunch that, um, generate new ideas and so yeah I think we had a lot of energy and ideas to start with and then but the working from home after a while you, you lose that generation of the new the new ideas and so um, it's been great to be back I guess since October 21 much more in person um, but I also I, but I I was kind of amazed and just I, I felt really lucky obviously that our jobs are something that we can do remotely and, and still mostly do, I guess, um, 90% well. And it just, it's the longer term, I think, where it suffers with um, those relationships and, and creating, yeah, that new, that new energy is what suffers. Um, but it was just felt like go, go, go. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone you talked to was, was hardly sleeping during the pandemic. I can't. Well, I had another question about your working hours. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just, no, it was 20, I felt like 24 seven. I never took a weekend off or probably till very recently. And you know, cause on top of the research and the outreach media were just calling all the time. And I by no means was doing a lot of that compared to others, but it was not something I'd ever done pre-COVID. So initially it felt really outside of my comfort zone. And Did you get any training? Any training? No, no, like during COVID, no. I think I had a training like in my postdoc years ago, but um, no, I just kind of dove in. Cause again, it was, I mean, it's great because in normal times I would have really hesitated and been insecure about talking to the media. and you were just like, I have to do this. This is an emergency. And so in that way, it was a real time of personal growth because you, you're just thrown into situations you never would have been thrown into and you have to rise to the occasion or not. So, so I'm grateful in that sense for the personal development that that sense of urgency just overcame all of my insecurities <laughs> and fears about trying new things. But, you know, I felt a responsibility to you know, really prepare and, and try to clearly communicate and do a good job with, with any media that I did. And, you know, that world is just like so hectic. I can't even imagine. They just want to call you shortly before and talk you into going on live TV in like 30 minutes. And, you know, so I had to kind of learn the system a bit and realize that. And then also in, in the first few months, it felt very much like being 
in the media was getting out important information that people, again, kind of like this, what we were doing on Dear Pandemic, it's like people just want to know how to keep their families safe. Um, you know, I remember Christmas, that first Christmas too, when things were getting bad again. And like, you know, I, I really wanted, I didn't want to ruin people's holidays, but I really wanted people to know like, the vaccines are coming very soon. Like, just like plan, plan to, you know, you want all your loved ones to be there for the next holiday. So, you know, I, I just remember some of that messaging seemed very important, but as time went on, you got a sense that, you know, people were wanted to, they wanted to ask you to be on TV to critique the government or pit you against some anti-mask person. And so, you know, I think I, I've kind of tried to find an equilibrium where I was like, no, I'm going to be that boring. You know, they're not going to use me in that way. Like I need to do it on my terms to get good information out there, but I don't want to be baited into some um, saying specific things about the government or, you know, fighting with conspiracy theorists. So that was a big learning curve, but I'm still really grateful that I was able to get, you know, contribute to getting some information out there at pivotal times. There was a lot around schools that I kind of spoke about on the radio and, and things when schools were opening up and I was I still remain puzzled at why masks were such a masks in schools, you know, where people were so reluctant to do that here. Um, you know, I mean it's the context has changed over the whole pandemic, but early on that for some reason there were not many masks in schools and England was quite unusual compared to other countries in that. So um you know, yeah, did some public writing on that. And, um, but all these hot button issues can end up getting <laughs> a lot of negative attention as well. But I'll say I, I didn't have a, a, a bad problem with trolls or I know a lot of people like Melinda Mills got, you know, death threats and things from being on TV. And so a lot of people suffered from that side of the public facing uh, communication. But I, for better or for worse, found some kind of um, slightly under the radar where people did not attack me personally. So and what about the pandemic? I'm grateful that, for that. that. Been able to be yeah, steer I was fairly clear. I was going to say we yeah. actually did steer pretty clear. So there's always kind of in your comments section, you know, some some bad actors. Although I don't think we get a lot. We 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 curated a little and we can block people who are terrible, but we never really got personal attacks or things of that sort. I think being, you know, kind of a group that was, you know, our individual identities weren't so visible from that, I think protected us because we did have some colleagues who had kind of started their own pages, were doing parallel things. And then we all kind of joined together, not, not formally, but we had like this support group and communicated back channel to support each other. And some of those people who are more individuals really did get attacked. Um, you know, yeah, this, well, one particular, yeah, I, I don't need to tell the whole story, but a woman in Texas who is an epidemiologist, but also the wife of a um, Christian minister and in, in a big church. And, you know, she was making recommendations about, you know, not attending services and things, um, you know, ways that, and this is really in, in the time when it was really dire, like that um, people shouldn't be gathering. And, she her family had to move like two times for getting like mm -hmm. really serious threats um so a lot of people took on a lot of of personal pain and risk and i still 
yeah, I'm really grateful to the people that did that. Um, and, and I was just very fortunate that I did not experience anything like that. And did you feel personally threatened by the risk of infection? Being oh, infected? That's a good question. You know, no, I think uh, I'm kind of a health... That, the at-risk demographic. Yeah, I'm kind of a health optimist, but my... We live with my um, mother-in-law, who's now oh, 88. Family. We are a multi-generational family. So she's 88 now. So I guess yeah, 86 at the onset, and and then I had three teenage kids in the household. So I was very worried about any of us bringing it to my mother-in-law. Um, but no, I think like at a personal level, I was never that afraid of it but I think I think I'm just a health I'm always a health optimist in general um, so I wasn't taking it lightly but no I wasn't I didn't feel personally scared for myself it was really yeah about my family um, yeah and my family um, in the US I yeah have older parents so I was I was worried about exactly the demographic that I I knew was most at risk mm -hmm. more or less there. So has the work you did during the pandemic raised questions that you're interested in exploring in the future? Oh <laughs> yes. Well I think the the funny thing is how well it kind of dovetailed with things I was already doing so in some ways it's not it's not a big shift but no I'm so obsessed with not obsessed but like I've done so much reading and that was just the other thing that I guess ramped up in probably February of 2020 to rewind. I just remember voraciously having to read everything that was coming out and all the preprints and scientific papers. So I did spend an enormous amount of time staying on top of the literature, whether it was the vaccine efficacy, the, the immune response, like I was reading everything. And um, I feel like that has put me in a good position to continue to kind of do this interdisciplinary work on on COVID. Um, and it's, I think what I really want to focus on, in on is the long-term implications of, of the pandemic for population health. Mm. So mm. we're continuing to look at, you know, changes in life expectancy. Um, you know, it could be a temporary shock where we, we go back to kind of normal levels of, of mortality. But, um, you know, I think all of us are concerned about long COVID, not just like long COVID as people having symptoms, but, you know, the actual damage from people who had severe disease, there's lung scarring, the risk of having heart attack and stroke and other events in the year following an infection has been shown to be pretty severely elevated. So. I think there's big question marks about how long kind of the scars of the pandemic on population health are going to last. Um, and that's something, you know, that is what demography and population health is all about, is trying to understand these trends um, in population health. I think there's also a lot of research that I did prior to COVID on the impacts of early life exposures on your later life health. and so. We still study the 1918 flu, like people who were in, in utero in 1918 and how that affects their risk of heart attack and dementia later in life. So, you know, I know that we've tried to say it's mild in kids and I so much hope that that is true, but I think we really need to look at the long-term effects of the infection, even, you know, from people infected at younger ages and just really keep an eye on that. Um, 
So yeah, no, it's absolutely going to be something that, that I keep doing. And I, I had actually gotten um, an ERC consolidator grant project that I wrote before COVID to look at mortality trends in the UK and Europe and try to understand the causes of kind of stalling life expectancy. We've seen improvements really slowing down. And so, so I was already kind of planning to do that and try to understand the trends um, before COVID, but this will obviously be just, you know, something that will, is going to be important for the next hundred years and understanding mortality trends. Cause it, it has, it's, it's what I call kind of this cohort exposure, you know, like the kids, you know, in utero or born today are still going to be like, they've, they've had this big exposure to an unusual pathogen and, and they'll carry that to some degree, you know, through their health history for the rest of their lives. So, um, so I'll have to be kind of forward looking, thinking about how COVID will affect those trends. And I'm also looking back to try to understand what, what were the major impacts on mortality of, of the cohorts that are entering old age today. Um, so it really does all, all kind of tie together. So you've got the rest of your career. Really I have plenty, plenty. <laughs> I'm never gonna run out of research <laughs> topics, I'm quite sure. And has the experience changed your attitude or your approach to your work and other things you'd like to see change in the future? Ah, I think as we were discussing, I, I, I came into, I guess I, I came into graduate school and research really wanting to, to change the world. Like literally, I was really that early, you know, young twenties who I'm going to completely solve poverty and inequality and so I, I came in very bullish on making a difference and I mean I kind of fell in love with research and then you also you know life intervenes and it's not as easy to traipse around the world and do hands-on things um, so I think I didn't realize how much I kind of missed the idea that my work would have have an impact so you know you know working on health i was always able to say no this 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 does have immediate you know applications i'm not doing something completely theoretical but you know the you know describing these biological pathways there wasn't a lot of like policy relevance to some of the work i was doing so i guess it changed me in the sense that i realized yes being connected to changing people's lives in real time is something that i i want to continue to do with my work. So that sort of connection to translation and just public outreach um, is something that I'm, I'm not going to kind of go back into my cocoon. I feel like I feel like it's now a responsibility and it's almost it's almost irresponsible to do this kind of work on a topic like health and not figure out a way to make it um, real in people's lives. So it's definitely it kind of brought me back, I think, to my um, my lofty goals of youth um, and, and finding a connection between, between the science and, and making people's lives better. Thank you very much.